Hey folks, over here at 11FS, we're still working hard to build the next generation of financial services, and our team is growing quickly. So we're looking for a bunch of new 11s to join us. If you or someone you know is up for a new challenge and a bit of a fintech nerd like us, check out the roles in consulting across product, engineering, design, delivery, and strategy. You'll find all the details at 11fs.com forward slash careers. And welcome to Fintech Insider Insights. I'm Simon Taylor, and in today's episode, we're going to be talking all about B2B payments. Although person-to-person and consumer-to-business payments have evolved rapidly in recent years, business-to-business payments still seem to dwell in a relative stone age of innovation and inefficiency. So how can B2B payments be better? Are stablecoins an answer, or does the solution lie in existing infrastructure? To help dive into the topic, I am joined by some incredible guests. Returning to the show, we're joined by Jeremy Allaire, who's co-founder and CEO at Circle. Thanks for joining us, Jeremy. Remind everybody who you are and what Circle does. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Simon. I'm founder and CEO of Circle. My background is in building internet platform businesses for the past roughly 30 years. Circle operates the platform behind USDC, which is the fastest growing dollar digital currency in the world. And you know, we also operate a suite of platform services that allow businesses, financial institutions, commerce firms, others to take advantage of digital currency and, and public blockchain infrastructure as a way to build financial and commerce applications. Fantastic, Jeremy. Great to have you with us. Also returning to the show, we have Rita Liu, who's Chief Operating Officer at Mode. Uh, thanks for joining us. Tell us a little bit about Mode and also your own background as well. Quite a lot of experience in payments. Thanks, Simon. Thanks for having me. It has been a long time. Was it 2016 when we did our interviews? <laughs> so amazing to see a FinTech Insider has come such a long way. I have been following your shows, you know, over the years. So for me, I left Alipay or Ant Group, where I worked at for nearly a decade and joined Mode in March last year. Mode is a UK FinTech group that aims to build an ecosystem that transforms the way consumers and businesses transact by integrating open banking payment with loyalty products and also digital currencies all onto one platform. It brings more options for merchants in UK to accept payment and drive loyalty besides card payments and more options for consumers to pay and grow assets. So Mode is one of the first companies to IPO on LSE uh, with a Bitcoin consumer offering and also adopt Bitcoin as a treasury reserve asset. Quite the combo. One of the best kept secrets in crypto and open banking, but not for much longer. Now you're on Fintech Insider, we hope. So making a Fintech Insider debut, we have Robert Leshner, who's founder and CEO at Compound. Robert, a little bit about you and Compound would be super helpful for all of our listeners. Yeah, so I'm Robert Leshner. I'm the founder of Compound which is an autonomous series of interest rate markets for cryptocurrencies. The entire thing runs as a series of smart contracts on the Ethereum blockchain. And it creates interest rates for digital assets like USD coin and allows borrowers, mostly hedge funds, to borrow these assets and pay a prevailing spot interest rate. Today, there's about $6 billion of assets in Compound. And it's one of you know, the flagship projects referred to as DeFi or decentralized finance. Fantastic. That is possibly the most succinct description of DeFi I've ever heard. So I can tell you're well drilled in that. Thank you so much. Alrighty, let's start a little bit by establishing what B2B payments are and some of the problems and the pay points. Rita, I mean, you have a wealth of experience in B2B payments. Why is it so hard for businesses to pay other businesses? What are the barriers? What are the frictions? 
Yeah, I think there are a few distinct features about B2B payment that are quite different from B2C payment. I mean, I had experience with both. I think, first of all, risk management and AML are much more complicated than B2C payment due to the uh, traditionally manual internal process of uh, businesses and paper-based documentation for B2B transactions. A simple example is B2B contracts, right? Every contract is different and with different format. So all of these mean challenges in automation in the payment process. And second is in some cases, B2B payment, the payment cadence is preset. So that means in some cases, instantaneousness is indeed not as important as for B2C payment. And third one is depending on the size of the businesses, the user i.e. the uh, accountant or finance in the company is not necessarily the decision maker on selecting the solutions. That means sometimes the pain points can be overlooked, but actually the businesses are paying for the prices of a labor-intensive manual processing within the organization. But whereas in B2C, the user is the decision maker, so they have vast flexibility to choose whatever solution they want to use. And finally, I think, you know, we have domestic and international segment for both B2C and B2B payment. I feel the gap of difficulty between domestic versus international facing B2B payment is much larger than B2C. And this is especially true in some countries where domestic B2B payment is more advanced. I think on that, like as I think about the consumer experience with a transfer wise, the consumer experience with a square cash app, like it's kind of okay. Like it's it, the infrastructure and the plumbing's not that great, but in B2B, like actually the, the buyer and the psychology side of it's really interesting, Rita. Jeremy, as you've spoken to smaller businesses and looked at this space, what do you think, uh, would you agree with some of those pain points that the B2B buyer is often overlooked or are there some other things as well? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think this is one of those things where fundamentally people aren't actually even seeing the possibilities of of what what can happen. I think uh, businesses are so accustomed to sitting on top of physical checks, actually. I mean, you know, Kai Sheffield from Visa makes the point that there's $140 trillion a year in B2B payments, and an enormous amount of that is actually paper-based checks. An enormous amount of that is is traditional, you know, swift settled or, or bank wires, and that's astounding. That's 130 trillion dollars of transaction volume, which is antiquated. And so, when we think about a TAM, that's a pretty big TAM, <laughs> and that's obviously across market infrastructure, large corporates, SMEs across the board. And you know, like earlier phases of the internet, it was hard to imagine in 2002 or 2003 that. You know, basically all of our television would be on demand, delivered over decentralized networks, open public protocols to any connected device that could connect to those protocols. I mean, some people saw it, but you know, if you were a satellite company or a cable company, you would say well, that's impossible. The quality will never be there, you know, et cetera. The same thing in, in many other spaces, in content and media more broadly. And I think that's where we are today. I mean, basically the public internet is advancing technology at a rapidly accelerating rate. Public blockchain infrastructure is going to be connected to every device everywhere in the world, to every person, every business, and transactions will settle instantly for free. And they'll settle between machines and machines, they'll settle between people and businesses, and we'll look back in 10 years and say, I can't believe that we were in that world before. And so I think over time, you know, businesses will basically conduct their transactions with, with digital currency, they'll conduct it over these networks. And a lot of what we think of as cost and friction and time delays will evaporate in the same way that 
we never think about making a long distance cell phone call, or we never think about if it's going to cost us anything to have a video communication like this. We just take for granted that there's peer to peer infrastructure, distributed infrastructure that we can tap into with open software. And, and so I think that's, that's what's taking place. This is one of those places where businesses won't kind of step forward and say, you know, I want a world where I can instantly exchange value everywhere over the internet. They think, you know, what is my bank offering me today? How can I do this? So, you know, I think we're at the you know, the start of a, a pretty dramatic transformation. Robert, I want to bring you in here. I don't know if you've given much thought to that transformation and also just some of the pain points people have got dealing with the almost the off-ramp of the real world, as it were, as the existing world. How do you help people sort of understand some of that shift? Again, Jeremy, I think, talks us through it there from, from a world in which, you know, there is all of this pain. Most of the payments are in checks. Where do you start with that? Yeah, well, Jeremy touched on some great points. Where you start is that, you know, decentralized financial networks offer tremendous advantages over existing financial systems, namely that they're global out of the box. They're transparent out of the box. They're autonomous. So the cost of running them and maintaining them is essentially zero and they're infinitely programmable. So you can build increasingly complex and interwoven financial networks between different use cases and applications. Right now, it's relatively difficult for applications that are built as decentralized financial applications running on blockchains to talk to what I would call the, you know, the real world in air quotes. But that's rapidly changing. So what we're starting to see very slowly is we're starting to see existing businesses learning how to interact with and talk to financial networks running on blockchains. Very slowly, we're starting to see, you know, crypto native custodians and exchanges and businesses interacting with these networks first. We're starting to see a huge amount of curiosity from central banks and regulators on how to interact with these systems. And very slowly, you know, we're going to start to see a sophistication start to emerge where any type of business, whether or not you know they know they're using crypto or whether or not they're familiar with how blockchains operate, able to interact with markets that happen to be built on blockchains. Um, and so the, the lines are blurring very quickly. I, I love that point. And, and I think what comes to mind is uh, Chris Dixon at A16Z talks about Encarta versus Wikipedia. Like there was a point in time in which Encarta was, was far superior. It was much easier to use. And Wikipedia was just full of graffiti. You couldn't use this thing. It was scary. But at one point, it just flipped. And then suddenly, why would I pay all of this money for something that's borderline a public utility and way better in the public utility form? And that we're kind of on that, um, that journey and of crossing the chasm. Still, there's pioneers really out there in the DeFi space. But as you say, um, and I hear it as well, banks with a capital B and a lot of market participants are really starting to take DeFi seriously. And as I look at folks like Mode, folks like Square, folks uh, like PayPal, who are very seriously looking at Bitcoin, they can start to be an interesting bridging phase where like fintech sold for the front end, and this is now looking at the back end. But Risa, I want to bring this back around because I wonder about bridging technologies. Uh, we talk a lot about open banking here on Fintech Insider. Very quickly, the definition of open banking, and, and can that play a role in this conversation as well? Because like opening up the banks surely feels like a good bridging step. Yeah, I, I think you know, open banking definitely provides a very important tech utility layer, both in payment initiation and account information point of view. I mean, we've already seen AISP being used to, to improve KYB and credit check process, which is important in B2B payment and which is one of the biggest 
the pain points for for B2B payment. And on payment itself, PISP can enable account-to-account or bank account payment without using cards, which potentially significantly lower costs for SMBs. But I think, you know, of course, the key question here is how to make the payer slash user want to use it. And, you know, like I believe the challenge here is quite different in B2B and B2C space. I think in B2B, it's about how to integrate the API into the legacy internal system of businesses to automate the process so you don't create new problems by bringing a new way of payment, but not automate the process. But for B2C, it's about how to get the consumers who want to pay with bank account payment. Yeah. Right. So I think that's why at Mode, we've been focused more on B2C. We have made loyalty solution the center of the offering uh, so that merchants can use the savings on payment processing to acquire more users new users while giving users a reason to use this new type of payment. The more users use it, the more cost saving there is for the merchants. So it's a win-win situation. So I think there needs to be a reason for the users to want to use it. I want to just add something on the bridging piece here, which is this is in, in many ways, it's it's a very, very deep focus for us. I mean, effectively, what, what we've rolled out is with Circle APIs is a way for businesses and financial institutions to basically connect the existing electronic money networks, the, the wire settlement systems, the, you know, the domestic bank transfer systems, the card network systems, connect those seamlessly with digital currency and public chain infrastructure. So you can move from an ACH transaction into a stablecoin transaction. You can have digital currency and you can terminate that digital currency with a wire that goes somewhere. And so providing that programmatic infrastructure, enabling fintechs, and commerce firms to just integrate that really simply and easily creates that bridge. And so in the short term, and you know, I, I think the short term is sort of the next couple of years, that bridge is going to be really, really important and connecting it up to electronic money movement networks around the world so that it's easy to kind of upload your dollars to the internet and upload your currency to the internet. And then once it's natively a digital currency, people will stay sticky in that. It's one of the reasons why the USDC in circulation continues to grow is once people have digital currency, they realize, why, why would I want to store money in an ACH format or or some legacy format? They like the utility value that they get from digital currency. And so I think we'll go, you know, eventually we'll, you know, in the next couple of years, we'll be in the many hundreds of billions of these kinds of digital currencies in circulation, eventually trillions. And people just transact in that. And then, you know, it'll be more native. It'll be on the internet, just like we don't think about, you know, our thumb drives of photos anymore. You know, I, th- I think we'll look at this kind of future as we've not just bridged, we've actually upgraded to this new infrastructure. And there's companies like Modern Treasury that are really popular. And there's a whole bunch of those sorts of companies that are you know, in the SMB financing space that really help just deal with the pain of getting paid and managing, making payments out and cash and transaction management. And for them to add another API feels like a, a no-brainer. So that these things are coming together in a really interesting way. Robert, I'm interested in your perspective as well, because it's not just the, the near instantaneous nature of money movement. You sort of mentioned earlier, DeFi has some other pieces to it. If I'm a small business, having my money work harder for me might be a good idea. Yeah, that's a great point. So, you know, assets in DeFi, like USD coin, are essentially always on, and they're always able to interact with other financial markets like Compound. So you can start to see this picture emerge in which all assets are being productive 24 hours a day, not operating on sort of like these units of daily settlement, but operating on these units of like second by second settlement and always having a home, always either generating an interest rate or always, you know, being productive to somebody at some point. I mean, it creates a higher velocity of money and a higher utility of money when this is the case. And I think it's a really interesting, you know, sort of 
economic shift from our existing financial system where assets are always you know being put to work in DeFi. And so I, I think at the end of the day, that's going to create a better set of sort of like baseline economics for all of the users, including businesses, including individuals, including, you know, large institutions and capital providers. And I, I think at the end of the day, you know, you have all of these things coming together where the costs are lower, the economic productivity is higher, and the system is just faster. And so, you know, as Jeremy put it, this is an upgrade. It's not an alternative. And I, I think that folks over time are going to start to see that dollars are simply better in DeFi than in individual ledgers and banks. Mm. Well, I'm going to pause this here because we just need to hear a quick word from our sponsors, but I'm thoroughly enjoying this conversation. We shall be right back. This episode is brought to you by Jack Henry Digital, the pioneers of personal digital banking. They are reviving the vision of financial institutions being on a first-name basis with customers by offering a platform for personal, human-centered service that puts the customer first. Your customers experience immediate accessibility while your employees get cloud-based, core-connected tools to offer service at the moment of need. To learn more, explore the team's latest insights at jackhenrydigital.com. This episode is also brought to you by MyTech, digital identity verification trusted the world over. Secure more high-value customers while reducing risk and costs with MyTech, a global leader and enterprise partner in identity verification technology. Create certainty in today's digital world with MyTech. Thank you so much to our sponsors. So we spoke a little bit before the break around some of the benefits and, and the newer technologies and the upgrade. Rita, I'm interested in your perspective. You talked a little bit about merchants and, and loyalty and, and that space. With the switch to e-commerce and the switch that we've seen since the pandemic, do you really think that there's a type of like merchant here that has to deal with cash and international transactions in a world of multi-currency that is struggling to do that? And how might different payment rails help them with with dealing with some of those challenges? Yes, for sure. I think, you know, especially for SMBs, right? The lockdown is putting lots of pressure on every player, but, you know, especially the SMBs. And traditionally, you know, what they can use is card network and, you know, like international payment rails like SWIFT. It's painful sometimes, you know, for them and the, the cost is very high. And I think, you know, recently we heard about, you know, like MasterCard is hiking the fee for UK customers to purchase from EU merchants. Card payment cost has always been in the center of controversy and this news just made it worse. We've been talking about the shift to two new infrastructure or new standard, which can help them solve these, you know, like invisibility and transparency issues. And I do think, you know, digital currencies could be an answer to that. Rita, thank you so much. I'm interested, Jeremy, do we still need rules? You know, where we're going, we don't need roads. Do we need a visa and a MasterCard? Do we need somebody to to help with if something goes wrong or my goods never got delivered? Is there a role for that type of player in the future? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the way I think about this is, you know, you, you have kind of like the base layer operating systems, which are public blockchains, and then you have protocols that are built on top of those that provide primitives for like base digital currency, core kind of financial contracts and settlement layers, but you also need an assurance layer. And one of the critical things that you know financial intermediaries provide, whether they be banks or, or networks themselves, is an assurance layer. And so I, I think one of the most exciting areas for innovation over the next few years is crypto native, blockchain native assurance layers. You know, building on building blocks like decentralized identity, decentralized risk protocols, and then you have the ability for wallets to kind of interact with each other and provide, you know, claims of assurance 
to use essentially various forms of certificate issuance to know what kind of endpoint you're interacting with. And intermediating that is something that involves collateral, it involves other things. And so it's possible to do all those things. It's possible to do all those things on chain as well. And so you can actually deal with the assurance layer in a more automated way. I think that's a natural place for startups to innovate. I think it's a natural place for you know emerging standards organizations and network standards organizations like Center and Center Consortium to innovate. And I think the established network companies, they see that. They see themselves as network of networks, as interacting with and helping orchestrate this as a credential issuer, as an assurance layer. I mean, PayPal itself sees itself as a, essentially a, an assurance layer for knowing that you're protected when you're making a purchase with a given merchant. And that's really where it started, in fact, was that assurance layer. So I think that's a place where there's an enormous amount of need and that it's not going to go away. We're not all going to just move to bearer instruments that are irreversible for every transaction. So you're going to need to have um, those kinds of layers. But I think there's a way to do that on this public infrastructure. Yeah, you can get the best of both. Robert, I'm interested in your take here because I think a lot of the momentum behind DeFi and crypto originally was the term be your own bank. But what if not everybody wants to be their own bank? And I think where Jeremy's going is, well, if you use the technology, you can still get a lot higher level of assurance and transparency. Do you think that businesses are going to be comfortable with that? And, And do we need the old world to wrap its arms around it? Or how do we start to build comfort with it? Yeah, so I think, you know, there's going to be a transformation that occurs as a function of time, where the first people to use this technology are using it directly. They're self-custodying their own cryptographic keys and their own assets. They're interacting with smart contracts on a blockchain that provide financial services directly. They're technically sophisticated, they're security sophisticated, and they're extreme early adopters. But that's a very small segment of the population that can or should be comfortable doing all of those things. And over time, the complexity gets more and more abstracted as more and more layers get built on top of it. And, you know, the best example I like to give is, you know, I honestly have no idea how TCP IP works. I just know that it works, right? And that I use it in every single, you know, interaction I do with the internet all day, every day, but I don't have to know how it works. But early users of the internet did have to know how it works. And so I think, you know, long term, you're going to have almost the entire world using you know, financial markets built on blockchains, but they're not going to be necessarily managing their own keys and they're not going to be interacting with these blockchain protocols themselves. They'll probably be accessing, you know, these markets through a bank or they'll probably be accessing them through an intermediary or they'll probably be accessing them in this sort of, you know, Apple TV version of what crypto financial markets become. And so I think it's just going to get easier and easier and easier. And the back end, it's going to scale in terms of importance and adoption and use. But to the end users, it's actually going to decrease in terms of its use and its importance. And that's going to be a really cool transformation. I like to think about, like, if you think about earlier, you know, renditions of the internet, right? You know, we all rely on email. It's just transparent as part of our lives. It's a distributed, decentralized system. The SMTP protocol exists. I can go download an SMTP server and put it on my Mac. And I can connect it to the internet and I can be a mail server and I can be a mail client. I don't need an intermediary. I can just directly sit on those rails and those protocols and message with anyone who has email in the world. But like, we're not all going to run mail servers. We're not all in a position to, to do that. And so, yeah, there are great consumer apps that sit on top of that. Everything from Gmail to Baidu to services around the world that just provide great user interfaces on top of and intermediate those protocols. I think the exact same thing is going to happen here, whether you're a business or a consumer, 
there are going to be intermediate layers that interact with all of this decentralized infrastructure. But coming back to the question of our businesses going to be comfortable with this, I mean, my take is, you know, if you look at something like a compound, this is a radically better infrastructure than like facing a counterparty that's got opaque systems and you don't actually know what the hell their record keeping is, what the hell their risk management is. Like it's just a very, very opaque thing. If you can make risk management, collateral management, the actual execution of settlement, all public, auditable, visible, and transparent, that's a humongous upgrade in terms of the safety and soundness of how you interact with with financial market infrastructure. So it's a huge step forward. And I think businesses will come to recognize that. They'll say, oh my God, I would so much prefer to interact with this public, transparent, auditable, machine executed. There's no no fraudster can stick their finger in there, right? There are other risks. Let's not get overhyped here because there are completely new risks and completely new things that have to be managed. But it's in the public domain where this intellectual property lives. And that's really significant. And so I think businesses over the long run will say this is a radically superior infrastructure, just like using a marketplace on the internet today, whether it be Alibaba or, or Amazon, is just a radically better way to do distribution of products. It makes complete sense to me that that auditability helps with risk management because I'm thinking about Robinhood and GameStop and the margin call that happened there. Totally. A lot of that margin call comes from the fact that people just don't know how many of these securities are going to buy, where they are, and can't keep up with everything. So the auditability, in theory, would have really, really helped there. Uh, Rita, you wanted to jump in. Yeah, I think you know the strategy would be a little bit different for users in uh, developed countries and developing countries. You know, the underbanked and the banks, you know, population. I think in the less educated area. Maybe it's hard for them to understand the power of all this new technology. But, you know, like I, I totally agree with Jeremy, for the banked population, right, creating a, a utility layer that provides a better interface and also centralize the fragmented messaging layer is the way to go. That, you know, we need to find a way, probably, you know, like uh, using new technology to work with the existing infrastructure is the easiest way to go about it. But for the uh, developing countries, there might be a, a different strategy. And I think on that, Rita, I mean, you speak from experience. I think with everything Alipay and Ant Group did, sort of skipping a generation, going straight to QR codes, why have card rails when you can build a new payment processor? Are there lessons to be learned there from the networks that were built around that? Yeah, I think, you know, I mean, in China, it's a, it's an interesting story, right? Yeah, like card usage was not as mature as in the, in the West, you know, back then, you know, before Alipay became popular. So, yeah, so it leapfrogged from no online payment to a full mobile-based super app. So I think, you know, that's actually exactly my point. I think for the developing countries, maybe they can have this leapfrog from, you know, like uh, having really, really bad or no service from their existing infrastructure, i.e. the banks, to digital currency directly because the pain points for them are bigger. Yeah. I want to bring in the the world of banks here, Robert, for a second and, and talk a little bit about central bank digital currencies and their own attempts to make tokens. What are your views here? Is these are these competitive with stable coins? And and you know, regulators have put out lots of words of caution around stable coins. Do you think that it's a, a welcoming environment or a competitive environment for stable coins and for DeFi more generally? Yeah, well, I, I think it's an early environment. I think we're in like chapter Two, you know, of an extremely long novel. You know, right now there really aren't any central bank digital currencies. There's a lot of you know idea space being explored and being talked about, but right now that's as far as it's gotten. I say this, you know, in regards to not just the U.S. but globally. There's a lot of recognition that the power of you know direct settlement 
is extremely powerful and extremely efficient, which is why central banks all are excited about the prospect of being able to issue a digital asset that travels and is accounted for more efficiently than existing financial markets, right? That's why pretty much every central bank around the world is now exploring this, which we could not have said two years ago. And I think there's a huge amount of excitement for that reason. But it's early and there's very little like fundamental traction yet. What there is, is fundamental traction of stable coins so far. And I have no idea whether they're going to compete with central bank digital currencies, whether they're going to be subsumed by them, whether they're going to gain enough traction that we don't need to issue central bank digital currencies. It's all very, very early. So I, I can't give you with any clarity, you know, how this is all going to unfold. All I know is that right now we have a few currency backed stable coins. And they fill the role in the use case of what people are looking for in central bank digital currencies. And it's possible that you get a more efficient you know, financial system when the central bank is the one that's essentially minting the mm. digital token. But that's yet to be seen. Interesting. It's amazing the DeFi person doesn't have a crystal ball. And there I was hoping. Jeremy, I'm interested in your perspective here because the history of the United States especially is is seeing a lot of private financial market infrastructure effectively become arms of the state. I think about Bank America becoming Visa and I think about kind of the growth from the private sector into national infrastructure. Could we not see something similar come from the open source space here, especially given the ARPANET DARPA background? Is that possible or is what's your perspective on the the regular regulatory worldview at the moment. Yeah, I mean, I have a pretty firm view on this, which is I think that the arc of the global financial system is one which is going to merge with the internet. And it's going to merge with the fundamental DNA of the internet, which is decentralized distributed systems, open protocols, open source software, open intellectual property. That has served the world extremely well. We've moved entire massive industries to it. And there's no reason why that is not going to also happen with the financial system. That doesn't mean that governments aren't going to want to supervise it in different ways, right? They clearly are in many domains of the internet and increasingly so and varying by country and market. But I think one of the big lessons here is that between the open technical communities and private sector innovators, it's possible to advance the state of what's possible extremely fast. And so we're seeing that in this space. I think one of the really positive things on the regulatory side is that you know the G20, the central bankers, finance ministers, the leading folks, all acknowledge that global stablecoins are going to become very likely systemically important financial market infrastructure. And they've done a lot of work to say, okay, if that happens, how ought we to think about that? And what kinds of, of rules would apply to the arrangements that make that possible? So center consortium is one such arrangement. And I think that's sort of the inevitable path, just like you have systemically important financial market utilities, systemically important payment infrastructures. Those are codified and observed by things like the BIS and the central banks. That is very likely what will emerge here is rather than the central bank saying, we're going to go build a stack and we're going to you know, hire IBM to go build us this thing that is going to operate and we're going to run this. I think it's much more likely that open infrastructure plus private sector consortiums will become the standards for how fiat digital currency works. 
and governments will supervise that like they supervise other systemically important financial market infrastructures. Verita, I'm interested in your perspective because, uh, again, with the global hat on, you know, the DCEP is happening in China. We've got an RTGS upgrade coming in Europe. The US is talking about FedNow or FedNever, whatever we want to call it. Verita, I'm interested in, do you think that there is a bit of sunk cost in upgrading B2B payments infrastructure and payments infrastructure in a country? Is that why there might be some level of competition here? Or do you see these things ultimately as, as collaborative as as Jeremy was saying, where the regulators will just end up supervising this stuff and, and using it because it's it's kind of come and it's been useful. I think, you know, it definitely needs coordination or regulatory oversight, coordination among countries to have a new global standard or a new global network, right? But the competition, I, I think, I mean, also for DCP is also very early stage in China, you know, like with all the other CBDCs. But I do think, you know, there is, a, in my view, I think there is a, some sort of a competition here because the desire of the Chinese government to internationalize RMB, right? Chinese rent. So does want to play a bigger role in international settlement or international money movement. So I think DCEP could be a tool for that to, you know, to facilitate internationalization of RMB. And I think it's the same for the other governments. So yeah, I do say, in my view, I think there is a bit of a competition here. Interesting. Robert, what are your thoughts? Do you think that countries that adopt stablecoins or CBDCs are, are really playing in a more competitive landscape for what's the reserve currency for the world? You know, I, I think it's too early to say, and I don't have a great opinion on that, to be honest. Great answer. Jeremy, do you have any views? Yeah, I mean, obviously, the theme of dollarization is a very significant one and, and very real. And I think at the same time, you know, we're, we're talking about the G2 right now. And in the G2, you know, China's playing a larger and larger role in international economic activity in many, many markets in the world. And businesses and institutions and states, they're going to want to be able to settle transactions directly with China. And so very clearly that that infrastructure is just going to emerge. It's going to run over the Internet. And so I think there are definitely you know visions of the world there are are state operated infrastructures and there are open decentralized and and private market participant type of infrastructures but i think we're in a kind of inevitable path in my view because of the internet because of the intense level of economic integration that it presents to the world that it will make sense to operate with fewer currencies that most individuals and businesses in different markets around the world, it will not make sense for them to operate in, in lots of different currencies. And I think we'll very likely be in a world where we have some very significant, very large-scale non-sovereign commodity money currencies like Bitcoin and, and Ether and, and potentially others that achieve very significant scale. And you'll have a very limited number of reserve currencies. Potentially, all of that could be presented in a synthetic asset um, that is then used as a unit of account by folks around the world. I think that's probably the most likely scenario over the next 10 or 20 years. The crypto SDR, you heard it here first. So, <laughs> Robert, I, I want to, I know you don't have a crystal ball, but I want to give people a roadmap for what comes next. If they're curious about B2B payments, if they're dealing with it day to day, how do they go about understanding more and learning more about this stuff and dealing with it from, from their business's perspective? Yeah, well, the best way to learn about a new technology is to try it, even if it's at an extremely small scale, even if it's only $1. I would say, you know, just becoming familiar with new you know, products, new markets is powerful. So I would say the best way to learn about this is to send, you know, a dollar to somebody using crypto to try to earn an interest rate on $1 using crypto and to just get, you know, a very small amount of experience hands-on. I, I think it's 
a much more transformative learning experience than anything you can read on the internet. Indeed, or even podcasts for that matter. But we do love that you're listening to this podcast, of course. Rita, what are your thoughts? Where, where do we head from here? Are B2B payments going to get better or are they going to be stuck in the mud for a few more years? I think, you know, it's definitely going to get better. We are seeing so many uh, innovations. I think, you know, a new regional framework and standard and focusing on specific corridors might be a good way to, to start, you know, having a real new standard. A mode does have a sister company, which is backed by Abu Dhabi a Sovereign Fund that is uh, working on a stablecoin-backed cross-border payment system focused on MENA region. And uh, we're actually looking at, you know, like uh, this area as well. I, I think, you know, like a focus on regional, uh, you know, new standard might be a good way to go as well. Wow. Uh, you do this every time I speak to you, Rita. You'll just drop something that blows my mind. That's That sounds awesome. Jeremy, what are your closing thoughts um, on, on this subject for B2B payments? Yeah, I mean, I think my closing thoughts are a little bit of, of what my opening thoughts were, which is I, I think we're in a, uh, a really exciting time where, you know, the the sort of open internet-based payment and settlement infrastructure built on digital currency is, is taking hold. And we're going to see over the course of this year, next year, the coming years, just more and more companies connecting to it. And we're seeing connectivity to this in many, many regions. So it's now possible to kind of instantly settle a transaction with, say, USDC into most major countries in Latin America, Southeast Asia, many African countries, European countries, and get it and flip it into a local currency and, and domestic banking system very quickly. And so I think we're going to see those connectivity points light up and, and businesses are going to start to realize that this is a, a better way to transact. A US dollar rail for the rest of the world sounds interesting to me. All right, that, well, that wraps up today's discussion. Thank you, everybody, for joining me. I've thoroughly enjoyed this. Where can people find out more about you and what you do, uh, Jeremy? If you want to follow me on Twitter, it's Jarelair and Circle.com. You can learn all about what we're doing. Fantastic. Rita? You can find me on LinkedIn or uh, This Is Rachel You on uh, Twitter. And Mode is quite active on Twitter as well. Search Mode app, uh, you'll find us. Fantastic. And Robert? I'm Robert Leshner. You can find me on Twitter at rleshner. You can learn more about Compound at compound.finance. I love those URLs with uh, long top-level domain names. I'm all for that. As for me, you can find me at Taylor on Twitter or Simon Taylor on LinkedIn or just check us out at 11fs.com. Thank you so much for listening. If you like what you heard, please remember to subscribe to the podcast, leave us a review, and tell everyone you know about Fintech Insider. Just grab a person on your next Zoom call. If you want to join the conversation, find us on social media. Just search for 11FS, search for Fintech Insider, or email us podcast at 11fs.com. Our producers love your emails. Thank you so much, everybody, and goodbye for now. Bye.